Welcome to Design Your Life, the podcast where we explore the central role design plays in our everyday lives and how, if harnessed correctly, has the power to positively transform the way that we live, design better businesses and sustainable solutions for the planet. We speak to creative entrepreneurs around the world about how they inspire their ideas to life and how they make it all work and the role design plays in their lives. I'm your host, founder of Frost Collective and author of Design Your Life, Vince Frost. At Frost Collective, we are dedicated to designing a better world. Our specialist teams work across branding, strategy, place visioning and wayfinding, solving problems with empathy and creativity to design experiences that benefit people, business and the planet. And as a proud certified B Corp, we meet the highest environmental and social standards by balancing profit with our purpose to design a better world. To find out more, head to frostcollective.com.au. Welcome to today's episode of Design Your Life, Tied for Change. Today I catch up with inspiring storyteller and CEO of Take Three, Sarah Beard. Sarah has spent the last 25 years producing some of the world's most thought-provoking conservation films. And most recently, she's extended her positive impact by joining Take Three for the Sea as the CEO. Take Three is a non-profit organization with a simple message. Take three pieces of rubbish with you when you leave the beach, waterway, or anywhere that you see rubbish. Operating in 129 countries around the world, Take Three removes more than 10 million pieces of rubbish annually and educates thousands on plastic pollution and effective recycling habits. Hi, Sarah. Welcome to Design Your Life. How are you doing? Hi, Vince. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm really, really well. Thank you. Oh, that's cool. Um, where are you in this wonderful world? Okay, well, currently I'm actually in the Take Three office, which is up at Long Jetty on the Central Coast. It's the first day back in the office, and it's really exciting to be back out in the world again. Wow. Yeah, we're, we're just, we came back on Monday, so it was like two days ago, three days ago. Two people in here out of 40-plus people. Um, next day was, I think, four. Today there's seven. So um, it's, I think people are slowly getting more confident with the idea of coming back. Yeah, I, th- I think definitely people are getting more confident and there's also a real desire certainly within my team to reconnect. I know we've obviously been able to keep functioning, uh, working from home, but to be able to connect and collaborate and uh, just kind of be in the same space um, is really exciting for us to plot and plan what we're going to do next. Well, you are uh, the CEO of an incredible organisation, Take Three, which you mentioned. It really is about inspiring participation and simple actions to reduce the impact of plastics and pollution and the waste in the ocean. You work with people and businesses around the world to ensure our oceans are kept clean and safe. Can you just talk about that, expand on that, the organization and how it came about? Sure, yeah. So we're Take Three for the Sea and Take Three started around 12 years ago and it was just a very simple idea of two women, Mandy Marichal and Roberta Dixon-Volk. Uh, as a response to what they were seeing on the beaches around them and what they were seeing uh, on the beaches around the world, and that was a massive amount of plastic pollution that was entering the ocean. They were then joined by Tim Silverwood, so they make up our three co-founders. And basically Take Three was started as a response to the plastic pollution problem that we were starting to see, you know, even 12 years ago. It was very much a grassroots organisation and... It had a very core and simple message, which we still have today, and that is if everybody picks up three pieces of rubbish, 
when they leave the beach, waterway or anywhere, then you're making a difference. Mm. And now take three, um, we have multiple education programs in schools, we work with businesses, we work with community, and we're now followed in 129 countries around the world. So in 129 countries around the world, people are picking up take three for the seed. It's pretty incredible. I pick up stuff if I see things lying around, but I get more angry about the fact that I see things lying around. And um, I guess angry with people and society that people have think that that is actually acceptable. And also for people listening in, if, if you can't find three things, it's okay to take two or one or ten. <laughs> like, don't stop there, you know? Yeah, it's very much just uh, really, I guess, a metaphor of what we should be doing. I mean, the, pro- the, the, great, the, the best outcome would be that take three doesn't need to exist, but we still have a litter problem uh, in this country, in Australia, and certainly around the world. You know, people still think it's okay to just leave their litter on a beach or drop it in the street. Um, and we're just not taking enough responsibility with our waste at all. So my goal is that we don't have to exist at all. Yeah, it's a bit like Ronnie at OzHarvest. She says the same thing. Incredible organization is getting bigger and bigger and bigger um, and, and, and working with helping to redistribute food to people in need. And she says the same things. Like, my, my goal is that we don't have to exist any longer. You know, it would be yeah. a wonderful thing. So you're not from Australia originally. You're from Fiji, aren't you? Yeah, I'm not Fijian in in my blood. Um, I am in my spirit. So, yeah, I was born in Fiji in the 1960s and I grew up there and moved to Australia when I was still a little girl. So certainly um, my life started as island life um, Mm. and uh, on the beach and, and every weekend we would go to an island called Naitampa, which at the time, funnily enough, was owned by... Uh, Raymond Burr from Ironside so um, he was a friend of my father's and uh, so really um, my early childhood was spent on the beaches in the Pacific and in the warm waters of the Pacific so uh, it was a great way to start life. Well I remember I remember being there for uh, my honeymoon and it was um, a hurricane came through and completely (laughs) destroyed the place. Um, It seemed like it's an incredibly beautiful place and um, spectacular ocean uh, and uh, culture, the culture is amazing there, isn't it? That must be really cool for you growing up there. Yeah, it was really cool, and and I think the wonderful thing about when I was growing up there, it was kind of pre-plastic, you know. So when I look at back at photographs, and my my parents um, were great Super Eight film um, makers. Uh, there was no pollution, there was no rubbish. I've, I've been fortunate enough to visit uh, Fiji multiple times um, since I grew up there. I was actually married there. I've, I've lived there a number of times in the last 20 years. And the Fiji of today is still a beautiful country with beautiful people and an extraordinary culture. But the West introduced plastic. And mm. so now those you know pristine beaches, those pristine rivers, those pristine oceans that I grew up with no longer exist. Whoa, you mean they no, no longer exist? I mean, are they just covered in rubbish? Yeah, there's there's plastic uh, certainly on the beaches and, 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 you know, and on the roads. The thing is, is in places like Fiji and, and many um, Southeast Asian countries uh, where, you know, if we go to Bali, everyone that goes to Bali talks about the litter mm. that they see on the beaches. Yeah. Um, but it's very important to note when we see that, that, the plastic pollution crisis, it's a global problem. So 
often the reasons why we see the rubbish on the beaches and on the roads, the roads and things over there is they don't have the infrastructure that we have here in the West. We're really lucky. You know, we have the garbage truck that comes once a week, takes all of our rubbish away. In, in many, many countries around the world, they don't have that infrastructure. So the West introduced these unsustainable single-use plastics mm. and yet there was no systems in place to deal no. with it and to manage that. In saying that, um, I am really hopeful and really pleased to see that in many of those countries, including Fiji, there is real leadership uh, happening to clean up the ocean and clean up the beaches and stop the use of single-use plastics. In many respects, some of those, what we'll say, third world countries around the world actually doing better than we are here in Australia. Yeah, I was going to say, people really struggle with that here. Um, mm. I noticed in, in, in where I live um, that people still get confusion around, you know, what to put in the bins, which which things, you know, et cetera. Really, really frustrating. There needs to be far more education, I think, in this and, and redesign the system perhaps to make it much more uh, easy and uh, or reduce firstly, um, but, but also encourage people and help people get it because – you know, just giving you a, a red, green, yellow, blue <laughs> bins of various sizes uh, when you move into a house, um, it doesn't help you to uh, make sure that you're doing doing the right thing. I think people, most people want to do the right thing. Um, very few people just kind of just don't care. Um, although I do see, still see people throwing garbage out of cars, which is just horrific still to see, <laughs> despite all of the education that's going on. Anyways, we've still got a lot to do, a hell of a lot to do. We've got a hell of a lot to learn, and we can design a better way um, by, um, you know, listening to people like you who um, can see the, the problem and have, have greater knowledge of that and understand ways of fixing the problems or certainly moving towards uh, reducing uh, the garbage and the waste that we have in our, in our world. How, so how did you get out of Fiji, and why did you get out of Fiji? <laughs> it's such an ide- idyllic place. I was just thinking... Um, why, why would you ever leave? Well, unfortunately, I had, had nothing to say about it. It was my parents. Um, my beautiful parents have lived all around the world. Um, they are of uh, English heritage, although my mother was born in China. My sister was born in Singapore, so we're kind of a bit of a multinational family. Wow. But, but mum and dad um, decided to leave Fiji because back in the early 70s, um, the, there was no schools really um, that were available for uh, European kids and also the the hospital medical system um, wasn't kind of um, strong enough back then that they wanted to raise their family there. So that's when they decided to move to Australia. My mum had actually been to boarding school in Australia uh, and my father was uh, able to secure a job based in Sydney. So um, that's mm. when they decided to move. Were your parents big on environmental issues as well? No, they weren't. I mean, definitely basic things like, you know, don't litter and and take care of your environment. We've always been animal lovers in our family, absolutely. You know, we certainly grew up in a household of every possible pet you could imagine. Um, (laughs) And so caring for animals is certainly a key value of my family. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, I think too, I also grew up in a household of National Geographic magazines uh, where uh, it was a part of our family culture to read those stories mm-hmm. about what was taking place around the world. But, you know, my kind of, con- my, my 
determination to live a life um, that involved conservation came at a very young age. You know, when I was six, I don't know quite where it came from, but um, I think, oh, I guess it did come from my parents because we were big, um, as a family, we used to raise money for the RSPCA. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a youngster, I got involved in um, what's called the Dodo Club, which was um, a club in Jersey started by Gerald Durrell, and it was about protecting extinct species. And so I uh, used to raise money uh, to send over to the Dodo Club, and I actually started my own animal club, age six, with my friends made folders called Animal Club and uh, collected (laughs) lots of information around um, what was going on in the world and what we as kids needed to do about it. And I think we probably sent about, you know, $5 a year to the Gerald Durrell Club. So it started early for me. Actually, that's really interesting you say that because I do notice with kids that kids have that, uh, there's that purity and that um, determination to do the right thing from an early age. What happens there? Um, You know, it's just like you see them just passionate about the environment, passionate about animals, um, super creative. You know, there's something inherent. You're born with something which is kind of good values more often than not. What happens in life that we seem to kind of lose that? Luckily, you haven't, but some a lot of people I know over time have kind of, I guess, become desensitized to uh, the situation. Yeah, I don't know what happens. Um, I guess, you know, certainly here in the West, we get way too busy, and that's that disconnect um, that adult humans have between themselves and nature. It's where I think we're going so wrong. Um, it's this disconnect and not um, truly believing and feeling that we are actually part of a natural system. Uh, we seem to kind of keep ourselves separate from that. Um, but for me, where I see the positive change is that it doesn't take much to bring those adults back in. You know, it's mm. like if you sh- if you raise the awareness, if you show what's going on, if you rekindle that emotional connection Uh, by and large human beings have good souls and you know Mm -hmm. they will respond to that and they will take action and that's essentially what take three is all about and is raising awareness about the problem showing the problem and showing the positive steps you can take to address that problem whether it be you as an individual in a small everyday way by taking three pieces of rubbish or making changes in your life, or as communities, or as businesses. So it doesn't take much to reconnect adults to nature, uh, reconnect adults to what's going around, going on around them, and for them to take action. I see it every day in Take 3, and I'm really inspired by it. That's really cool, and, and I think Take 3 just shows, it's, it's less daunting than a lot of organisations you do. You don't have to do a huge amount, and that, but that little, that little bit um, makes a massive difference, doesn't it? Yeah, and, and that's, I guess, the key, the key to take three. It's the simplicity behind our message uh, that you as an individual uh, have enormous power to make a difference. And it's not just by the actions that you take. Um, and we can talk about those actions, about you know, you know, picking up three pieces of rubbish. You can stop using single-use plastics. But it's also about the storytelling around that. So if you share your story about why you're doing it and what you're doing 
and then you inspire others to do so, that's when we get that ripple effect that we hear about and the multiplier effect. So each of us as individuals can make changes in our behaviour mm-hmm. and we can influence and inspire others to do so. And if you think about that, like Take 3 is now in 129 countries and if you think yeah, about crazy. everybody doing that, everyone sharing their stories, that's when you see the real change happen. And that happens again in communities and that happens again in our work with businesses. So we may have an event where we'll have 56 CEOs, business leaders, attending a cleanup event. They feel inspired by what they see and the action that they've taken on that day. They take it back to their workplace and share that story. They bring their own businesses on board and then they share it with other businesses and all businesses kind of want to link up and do the same. So that's why a simple message can be really, really powerful. Uh, every small action you do actually has tremendous power and you really have to believe that because I think, mm. you know, we're living in a time where it is it can be tremendously overwhelming. You've just mm. got to watch any of David Attenborough's latest films about the future of the planet. Yeah. And, you know, I watched one last night and you just think, oh, gosh, you know, and you watch it with your kids and you try to, you know, there's hope kids. And I really do, uh, and that's why I work for Take 3, believe in the power of the individual to change their behaviour and influence and inspire others to do so. And that's how you build a movement. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's incredible that you're in 129 countries. A lot of organisations struggle to get into two. (laughs) Um, So it must be that it's such a compelling proposition um, and and something that's really latched on and touched the hearts and minds of people around the world. Yeah, it is because, you know, we talked about this the other day. People inherently want to do the right thing. Mm. Um, And if you can provide them with simple actions that they can feel really good about, they can feel positive about at the end of every day that they Mm. live, uh, then that's a good thing. And, you know, you just go, if I go through our global Facebook page and I read the stories, whether it's a six-year-old who's made a poster about saving the animals and there's Take 3 messaging over there and she's got her own little fundraiser happening which is extraordinary. It's like a little mini me when I was six Um, to, you know, somebody in Belgium who's sharing her story about what she picks up to somebody, Mm. you know, in in South America somewhere. You know, this is a global movement. There's so many things that we can do, but when it comes down to those simple actions, uh, it can actually drive change. Absolutely. Well, storytelling is at the heart of your organization, but it's equally at the heart of your passion and, and your career before you got into Take Three. Can we just talk about, because we, we got to you moving to Australia and <laughs> going to school. Yeah. Uh, what happened then? How did you get into your career? Okay, so uh, a young Sarah um, grew up wanting to be a National Geographic photographer, um, probably because of National Geographic magazines that, were floor to ceiling in our household (laughs) and the travel. Um, You know, I was lucky enough because my parents um, had lived all around the world. We did a lot of traveling as well. So I was exposed to a a big, broad, interesting world that I was very curious about. I've always been attracted to real stories about people and real stories about places and situations more so than fiction. 
Um, so I ended up, when I left school and, and finished a bit of travelling, I did a fine arts degree majoring in photography to still mm. pursue my goal of being uh, a National Geographic photographer. I took off overseas and travelled uh, through Europe, mainly uh, was going to set myself up in Berlin, travelled to Spain and Morocco, all in pursuit of um, taking photographs to submit to National Geographic and, and start my career. Along the way, I met some documentary filmmakers uh, when I was living in Spain, uh, and they really inspired me about being able to work as a collaborative team uh, and to tell living, breathing, moving stories. Uh, so that's kind of what started my documentary career. Uh, and I spent really 25, almost 30 years uh, working in film and television, mostly uh, making documentary films. I worked myself all the way up from uh, being a researcher, uh, developing stories all the way through up to producing uh, and in the recent years, I've produced a couple of uh, feature documentary films ar around the ocean and the impact on the ocean. So a lot of the storytelling I've been involved in in my filmmaking career have been conservation films, uh, which is a direct link to my values and interests uh, and a particular focus on the ocean in more recent years. That National Geographic had incredible <laughs> impact on you, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I remember those wonderful yellow magazines lying around my house, and, and they were often in doctors' waiting rooms, dentists. They were everywhere, weren't they, as a kid? I don't know if they are still today. Um, incredible publication, and just the, the, the richness and quality and the, you know, the stories and the photography. The standard was like, I don't know, you can't say it's way ahead of its time because it feels like now, I don't think people do things at that standard anymore. It, feel, it feels to me um, that publications like that are kind of unfortunately not mm -hmm. as um, uh, visible or, or as, I guess, seen as important as, as they were. Uh, a good friend of mine, Scott Dadich, uh, he, he had the l incredible opportunity of redesigning National Geographic a few mm -hmm. years back. Um, and I was highly envious of that because the content is just spectacular and that yellow <laughs> is just incredible too, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's for me, I, I do love the words, absolutely, but I've always been attracted to the image. So it's the power of the image. I mean, still at, at, at home, I've got a framed copy of a National Geographic, the famous one with the young Afghanistani woman with the blazing green eyes. You know, I've, oh, yeah. I've carried that around with me all my life. Um, wow. For me, it's the power of the image, and, and in a single photograph, you can you know, you get a sense of who a person is or what a place is like or what a situation is. Uh, and it's the same in my filmmaking career. It's the power of the image and I've seen that um, very much so mostly in the film that I made called Blue, which I know that you guys are going to be screening at yes. your office shortly, which I'm super excited about. Yes, we're, we, we are. As soon as we get everyone back into the, the studio, we're going to have a screening. No plastics allowed. We're going to drink lots of water. Um, we're going to have salt water spraying on us while we watch it. <laughs> but oh, like, can tell I come? Tell it sounds fantastic. Yes, you can. You can. Um, can you talk about Blue? Talk about the film. Sure. So Blue uh, is a feature documentary film that came out in cinemas in 2017. And Blue was a film that myself and a very dear friend and, and the film's director, Karina Holden, decided to make as a response to um, a statistic or a, a report that came out from WWF, the World Wildlife Foundation in 2015, mm. that stated that half of 
all marine life had been lost in the last 40 years. If you just stop Jeez. to think about that, half of all marine life had been lost in the past 40 years. And the yeah. other part of the report was that by 2050, there would be more plastic in the sea than fish. Now, you kind of hear those phrases quite a lot um, around the traps, but I always say to people, just stop and think about what they're actually saying there. Uh, I mean, that's hugely significant. And that, that was back in 2015. I mean, that's five years ago now, or six years ago. Um, so we had made a number of films together and we felt compelled by hearing that, that we needed to make a film about what was taking place under the waves, about the impacts that, that we humans were having on the ocean. And at the, also at the same time, there was a big debate going on about whether or not to make the Great Barrier Reef um, listed as endangered. And unfortunately, mm. it wasn't. And so we had to make a choice whether we were to make a film just about climate change or just about the Great Barrier Reef, or were we to make a film about all of the impacts humans were having on the ocean, overfishing, climate change, pollution, acidification, etc. We made the choice to make a film about all of the impacts because we wanted to raise awareness about everything that was taking place and all of those things are also interconnected. But because we made that choice to make it about all of the impacts, it was, it was in some respects light touch. We couldn't really drill down very deeply into each of those topics. So for us, the key focus of the film was to make an emotionally engaging film, to make a beautiful film. So it's not your traditional mm -hmm. documentary where you have talking heads. Uh, we chose to make a film about um, using what we call ocean guardians, so mostly young, um, although it, the film did feature the extraordinary uh, ocean legend Valerie Taylor, who's also young in spirit. <laughs> Um, we chose to follow their stories um, and how each of these people had made a lifelong commitment to protecting the ocean. And we observed what they did. And it was very um, much an emotional film. We, sh we allowed people to see what was going on. Um, and the idea was to make show people what was going on so that they would care enough to take action. So along with the film, um, which we call an impact film, uh, mm. we ran a three-year impact campaign. So it's where you use the film um, as a, a resource to raise awareness and to inspire action, exactly what I do with Take Three. Uh, and that's what we did. And what was the impact? So what the is the impact? It's still going, obviously. <laughs> yeah, it's still, it's still going um, all these years later. So... Uh, Blue has gone all around the world. I think uh, we're now up to around 75 international film festivals, which wow. is huge for an Australian film. Yeah, yeah. We've got 16 um, international awards and multiple nominations. But more importantly, uh, it's the reach. So the film's reached, gosh, over the years, probably about 15 million people with its message. We ran Take Action campaigns and... For me, the key way that we know that the change that's happened um, is the anecdotal stories that people share back with us about the individual changes that they've made in their lives or their businesses as a result of seeing the film. The Australian Marine Conservation Society also used the film to take 
uh, to federal government in Canberra when they were pushing for the Marine Parks campaign. Mm-hmm. So it's been, and it's also travelled to uh, labour conferences in South Australia. So it's it's gone around and around multiple times. Um, we've we created lots of assets like a Living Blue Guide, so that people could really tap into uh, ways that they could uh, contribute to ocean protection. Um, the the key thing with a film like Blue is is you show people the film, and we often had. Um, you know, panels after the film and everyone say, okay, this has moved me, what can I do? So you need to have answers for that. So Mm -hmm. we certainly obviously created assets within our website where people can take action a film. The the key thing, though, about Blue is it really shows people what's going on and I think probably the strongest scene where people who didn't really understand the impacts of plastics, once they saw the film, they understand the impacts of plastics. And there's a scene in the film where we're in Lord Howe Island with uh, Dr. Jennifer Lavers, who uh, studies seabirds over there. And 100% of seabirds are impacted on plastic. And we see, uh, you know, young dead seabirds that she's, um, uh, you know, looking at the contents of their stomach. And mm. there's seabird, young seabirds there that have up to 250 pieces of plastic oh in their belly. God. It's obscene, really. And this is the thing is it's all these small plastics. So all of, you know, the thing about plastic, once it gets into the ocean, it never, ever goes away. Plastic never goes away. It just breaks up into smaller and smaller pieces and all those kind of little colourful bits and bobs, you know, bottle lids and things floating around. Parents, seabirds foraging at sea, think it's fish. So they unknowingly take it back and feed it to their young. The images we show in blue and the images we sometimes share in Take 3 are pretty graphic. Mm. But it's until people see that, they, then they get it. That's what got me to pursue Take 3. I saw a, sh- a very short film about the North Pacific albatross in Midway Island. It starts off beautiful. You're in a, a seabird colony with adult seabirds flying around. It's all extraordinarily beautiful. And then we zoom down to what's taking place on the island. Again, hundreds and thousands of seabirds that have died and there's plastic everywhere. When I saw that, I cried and I looked around to see what I could do and I sought out an organisation that was doing something about it and that was Take 3 and that was back in 2013, 2014, many years before I'm in my current role and and I joined up as a volunteer. Wow. And that was because of the images I saw. The storytelling, incredible. Um, and I mean, I've have seen footage of you know sharks and whales. Same situation mm-hmm. where they look at the content in the stomach and it's absolutely full of rope, plastics, rid- ridiculous. Um, and obviously, their bodies can't process that. Yeah, well, you know, one of one of the main um, takeaway messages from Blue was uh, we have to stop using our oceans as a commodity and start thinking of it as the life force of our planet. And what we mean by that is, again, few few people really understand the role of the ocean in for our planet. We should be calling our planet, instead of planet Earth, we should be calling it planet ocean. And that's because over 70% of our planet yeah. is covered by ocean. And it is it drives our weather, it drives our climate, it produces over half of the oxygen we breathe, it absorbs more carbon than our forests, it provides us with our food, 
you know, if we don't take care of our ocean, if we continue on the same pathway of overfishing it, dumping all of our rubbish in there, allowing climate change to, you know, to, to turn it into acidification, then we're in trouble. We really are in trouble and people need to understand that and they need to start taking care of it and protecting it, if not for the environment, for yourselves. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it's bizarre how we are, as human beings, 70% water. Yeah. There must be a correlation between that. Um, it's interesting. I was listening to the... Um, the B- I, I, listen to the B- I don't sleep very well at night. I'm always <laughs> listening to the radio. But I was listening to the BBC, which I love listening to. And there was a show on a couple of days ago. There was an amazing guy on there called Richard Devereaux uh, from director at Kew Gardens. Mm. And he was talking about kind of the same thing. I know it's not the ocean, it's the land. But he was saying 40% of the world plants are under threat of extinction. Mm. I mean, it's just like we're in a really bad situation. I don't want it to be a you know, a war between the oceans and land. Um, but it's not just the oceans that need that our help. It's the it's land as well, obviously. It's a much bigger picture. Um, but obviously, um, you guys are focusing on, um, you know, the ocean uh, and, and uh, the shores and educating people uh, in terms of helping people understand the importance of taking care. Yes, we are. But um, we also advocate for that we need to take care of the entire environment because you can't think of it separately. You can't think no. of land and sea no. or the biodiversity or the atmosphere or the deep core of the earth. You can't think of these things as separate. It is all part of one system. We are all exist within a closed biosphere and so that every action we have as human beings affects the stability of that system that we are all a part of. Every single species on this planet, land and sea, every tree, every fish, every human, we are all part of the same system and we need to start thinking that way. And absolutely, we need to, you know, I'm a BBC fan as well, you know, and a David Attenborough fan, it must be my English roots, I think. Um, (laughs) But, you know, it's, you know, some of the simplest you know climate change is not a simple thing but a, one of the simple steps we can take on this planet is to plant trees because they mm. will absorb the carbon that's their job and so you know if you're not an ocean person go out there and plant as many trees as you possibly can plant 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 yeah. because again it's all of the same system we've got to take care of the entire environment. You mentioned David Attenborough, Sir David Attenborough, and there was a quote you said the other day, which I can't remember exactly what it was. What was that? So the amazing Sir David Attenborough said that we have moved from being a part of nature to being apart from nature. And this is very much a soapbox moment for me because it's probably the core value of where I've arrived in my life in that... You know, as human beings, we seem to think we're outside of nature, that we can control it, that we are separate from it. But until we start, we return to that place that that David's telling us that we need to get back to, that we need to think of ourselves, we need to believe it to the very essence of who we are as human beings, that we are a part of nature, that we are part of this life cycle, we are part of this biosphere. We're not in control of it we're not the boss of it 
until we start thinking that way again, I think some of the steps we want to take will be very difficult. It's We've got to change that psyche. We have to stop this kind of arrogance that we have as mm. human beings, that we're in charge here, you know, and that we have more rights than, you know, any other, any other living species. And I, and I, you know, like I kind of sound like a hippie and I love hippies and I probably am a hippie, but, <laughs> <laughs> you know, this, this applies to everybody. It doesn't matter who you are, um, what cultural background you come from. And we have so much to learn from the indigenous cultures in the world and that's the way that they live and that they've always lived. I don't, I, I think mm. most of the indigenous cultures in the world are still living as being a part of nature. You know, that's a no brainer yeah. for them. They're like, yeah. look at us and think we're all crazy and mad and, you know, have completely lost it. It's that connection, that connection piece to, to country that we have here in Australia is, what should become a part of our DNA. Yeah. Well, what have we lost? It's not just Australia. It's other countries in the world that are just focusing on ownership, uh, owning land, owning places, materialism, you know, money. I mean, it's all like, I mean, education teaches you to be successful. I mean, they were all competing to do best in class, to get get the best career, to make the most money, you know, buy the nicest house. I mean, all this kind of stuff, which is pretty destructive, really, when you think about it, in terms of that greed. Well, it is destructive, and I'm not entirely convinced that it's making people particularly happy. And I certainly know um, when myself or the people around me uh, go back into nature, whether it's swimming in the ocean, whether it's walking in a forest, any connection with nature, it's a positive experience for us as human beings. Mm. You know, when yeah. people, you know, as human beings, most of us, are in awe and naturally attracted to seeing extraordinary wildlife. You know, I, mm -hmm. I don't meet many people who don't sit down and watch a David Attenborough film and don't just sit there in awe of the world around us. Yeah. And so nature is incredibly powerful for our experience as human beings. Um, it's incredibly powerful for our mental health. And so we just need to live um, in unity with it you know we're a part of it let's live in unity with it let's not try to control it let's respect it let's honor it and and we'll reap the benefits of that you know we will live happier healthier longer lives the planet will be around for a lot longer and i think uh you know i i think the except the hope that i have is the conversation is starting to go that way i think people are starting to acknowledge more and more. When I first got involved in Take Three, the world wasn't really talking about the plastic pollution problem. Uh, the world wasn't even talking about climate change, really. Some people were, but not globally. These mm. things are now a part of our global conversation. Mm. Very much so. There's not a day that goes past where you probably don't hear a story, of, you know, that you won't hear a story about climate change. Every second day you'll hear a story about plastic pollution. You'll there's constantly stories, conversations, films being made, yeah. decisions being made to return more to taking care of nature and the environment because our very future depends on it. And for me, that gives me hope. I, I, agree. I agree. There's huge momentum now. Um, that you, there's not, as you say, there's not a day that goes by that someone's not on the news about um, some aspect of the environment, mm. which is really, really cool. And obviously people like David Attenborough for a long time 
has been scouring the earth and, and filming it and documenting it, the beauty and, and the things that are bad that, that need, need our help as well. It seems that there is now a mega urgency around fixing these problems. Um, and what role do you think film or television can play in that? Yes, there definitely is a mega urgency in fixing this problem. And, and film and television has an enormous role to play uh, as storytellers uh, about raising awareness uh, and education about what's going on because there are still, whilst I say that it's a big part of the global conversation, there's still a lot of people, even I meet in my everyday life, that truly aren't aware of the problems. Recently, I spoke with somebody who wasn't aware that plastic is made from oil, you know. Mm. It's a simple, kind of a simple fact, I thought, but a lot of people are aware of, of those things. So storytelling, which is essentially film and television, plays an important role in raising awareness, talking about the problem, but also that uh, connection and that emotional inspiration piece. So the visual image is incredibly strong we see something, we feel that emotional connection, we feel compelled to act. You know, you, I, I could stand up and, and do a talk for an hour about, you know, the plastic's impact on wildlife, seabirds. People will listen, hopefully. <laughs> but if I stood there and held up an image about a seabird with its belly full of plastic or a sea lion tangled up in a fishing net or a sea turtle tangled up in a fishing net, I think the message is stronger in that image than anything I can ever say. Mm. And so we need to keep telling these visual stories. Uh, but not only just telling the story, telling and, and inspiring people to take action, giving people a roadmap. Um, as, as you said at the very beginning of our conversation, most people want to do the right thing. Mm. Um, and if you provide them with ideas and opportunities, um, then people will take up, take action. They will make change. Absolutely. So film and television is about storytelling, showing people what's at stake. But one of the things that I've learned through my filmmaking and through my experience with take three is whilst you've got to show the problems, you've also got to show the beauty. You've got to show what's there, mm. what's at stake, what we could lose. But you've got to also drive that conversation in a positive direction because it, otherwise if people are overwhelmed and they feel it's all too late and there's nothing we can do, then they probably will just kind of go and bury their heads and, and go and just kind of go on their phones or whatever it is. It's really, really, really important to drive the conversation in a positive way. And that's what Take 3 is all about. That's what Blue was all about. It's like you as an individual are incredibly powerful by the decisions that you can make, the changes you can make, even the simple ones. That's addressing the problem. You combine those with the other people in your family, your immediate community, that's an even bigger change. And then we go from there. So... You know, remain hopeful. Like, like we see it over the last few years. I've seen incredible change in this space in in taking care of the ocean and taking care of the planet. And that's come from people. You know, as as consumers, we have incredible power to to vote on the change we want through our wallets. And um, just believe, believe in your potential as an individual. 
to drive change, to make change, to make a difference. And that's that's where the hope lies for me. Wow, that is incredible what you just said. When you, when you were talking, I, I kept thinking about um, the, I guess, the, the friction between fact and fiction. Um, and when you, when you watch TV, which I don't do a huge amount of, but when you watch the news uh, and, and you watch a TV channel, for example, there's the news about death and destruction, murder, crime, etc. And then there's an ad straight out or in between that about the next crime film or uh, you know murder film or, or whatever it is. I mean, we are surrounded, war films. I mean, film, filmmaking equally... Is as obviously it's about storytelling, but it equally there's a massive amount of people. I, mean, I would say the majority of films are about murder, <laughs> death, yeah. and war and crime. And I guess I just kind of wonder what you think in terms of how do people, human beings, kind of navigate that and understand. Like you're talking about Blue, which is a beautiful, honest, inspiring film about real, real the real world, but we're often living in this fake fantasy world and and I just I wonder how people generally navigate that it's our greatest challenge as filmmakers and storytellers to try and seduce people over to the kind of stories that we want to tell Uh, because you're right you know the big blockbusters you know like blue didn't make billions of dollars you know (laughs) you know we would love to to get all we would love to have the number of audience seeing films like blue um Mm. It's not about the money per se, but it's about the audience numbers that would equate to that kind of dollar. But people don't choose that. People want to, you know, choose the the latest James Bond or um, those kind of fantasy films. That's a big psychological question about human beings because I I guess in some respects um, the human experience can be overwhelming, certainly. And I guess a, a lot of our conversations about humans in the West, you know, humans in the majority of the world they don't have time to ponder many of the things that we're talking about because they're too no. busy just <laughs> trying to you know, feed their families, find shelter. Um, so, yeah. you know, I want to make that clear that the conversation that we're having is is a very small part of the world who who has the time to ponder these conversations and, and watch these films and all of this kind of stuff. But... Um, I don't know what it is about the human psyche, but the majority of audiences that watch film and television are going for the fantasy stuff, for the murder, for the James Bond, all of that kind of stuff. So we, as storytellers, just have to keep putting stuff out there, keep coming up with ways that we can seduce audiences to, to kind of make the choices to watch the kind of content. Mm. But in saying that, I, I still would say someone like Attenborough's films are some of the most mostly watched films yeah. out there. I mean, you know, and another classic example of an award-winning and highly watched film was My Octopus Teacher. I'm sure you've heard of it. Oh, yeah. You know, that mean, was awesome Everybody's film. talking about My Octopus Teacher and a simple yet extraordinary film that made people bawl their eyes out and, and mm. want to have their own experience with nature, want to get into the ocean and swim and be surrounded by nature. So there are those stories that still have become part of popular culture. Um, And, you know, we still need to push, we still need to get government support 
you know, the government here in Australia are making it more and more difficult to get funding for documentary films, particularly natural history films. There's lots of changes that are happening right now. So it's a big thing that we need to stand up against to, to fight for the importance of these stories. I think we talked before about um, reconnecting with nature. That is such an important thing for so many of us who've dis been disconnected over time uh, in this modern world. But it's also reacquainting ourselves with our feelings and, and sensitivity um, because often that's been seen as being a negative thing. Sensitive people are, oh, my God, they're a pushover or, <laughs> you know, they care too much or whatever. You've got to be strong and bold and, and be demanding and get through life. But it, it, it's like that, that sensitivity is missing. That sensitivity is what you're looking for, for people to see Take Three or Blue or David Attenborough film uh, and, and feel something and feel that that something not right or that something needs to be done and that they can play a part in helping that. Because I think you always kind of, well, people often think that someone else, surely someone out there is sorting this out. Surely someone out there is, is fixing all the problems of the world and may not be the case. It's really easy for us to all think that surely somebody else is out there fixing the problem. And there are a lot of people out there, a lot of people. And that's, again, what gives me hope. Uh, tackling all of the big world's problems, both, you know, directly, you know, in terms of humans' health and well-being, as well as the environment. From my point of view, particularly when it comes to the environment, you know, humans have created the problem. All of us have created the problem. You know, even me as a CEO of Take Three, it's far from perfect. There's things that I do that can, you know, directly contribute to the problem. So humans have created the problem, therefore humans yeah. are responsible for solving the problem and we're smart i mean you know if we can you know if we can use our incredible brains that are incredible to design our way out of these problems mm, um exactly. you know we've, we've created and achieved extraordinary things you know when we've been extraordinary positive things as well as negative things during yeah. our time on this planet and if we can use those that smarts our brains to design better ways of living Mm -hmm. uh, then we're going to be okay. You know, it's, it's, you know, the film I saw last night was talking about the tipping point and we're at that tipping point now. So we actually do need, you know, we can't say, okay, in 20 years, we're going to, you know, make these changes. We're going to come up with these solutions. It's got to happen right now. We're smart enough to do it across all parts of every single sector. Everybody is responsible. Every human as an individual, as a community, as a business owner, as a government, every part of the supply chain in production, change can happen. We can we're smart enough. We can design a way out of this, come up with solutions mm -hmm. and act upon that. And uh, we'll start going in a positive direction. Absolutely. And, and designing a better world is what we believe in. And, mm -hmm. and design has actually caused the problem. Design has actually, I guess people are not deliberately designing rubbish, <laughs> designing garbage, designing uh, detrimental objects and things uh, that are damaging the earth. But it's, it's really cool to think that we can design our way out of this and, and there is hope and optimism and there is a way forward. It's not just someone else's problem. Or designers actually responding to briefs and questioning them and going, you know what, this, is, this brief is not going to, this, this brief is not sustainable. This brief is actually not a positive thing. I need to confront the client I need, or I need to discuss it with the client. I need to help 
uh, them understand or help evolve this into a positive outcome, not a negative outcome. Um, someone else isn't going to sort it out for you. You knew designers have every single day of their career the opportunity to do things better, not just make things look nicer or more aesthetically pleasing, uh, but help help kind of help design reduction of materials, help uh, design better outcomes um, in terms of um, positive contribution to the world, not a negative one. I think I just think people need to be far more aware of that and understand what their part is in that because actually. It's not sometime in the future, as you say. It's actually start now. Start today. Yeah. Start with the very thing, your day today. Make those decisions. It might be hard. It might be um, you might forget to kind of to, to ask for, you know, uh, or we're still using coffee cups from the shops because of, um, uh, of COVID. Um, but you can already say, hey, I don't want a lid. You know, that's, that's, that plays a big part. It's interesting. We, we're, um, we've been part of kind of a creating a brand uh, which was meant to have been launched um, uh, earlier in the year. Uh, it was, c- was going to be called Bondi BYO Cup Week, or Bondi Says Fuck the Cup. Um, and it was, it was organized, uh, and the idea came about by Sandra Barham and uh, Sarah Wilson, uh, both of Bondi. And it was an idea that basically, when you look at the amount of cups that we consume, uh, coffee, coffee's like gone through the roof over time. Mm-hmm. We never used to, in the old days, you know, get take away anything, um, uh, let alone coffee. And now we're just highly addicted. We love it. It's incredible. The, 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 the craft of making coffee is quite spectacular. But obviously can be detrimental to the earth. And, and, you know, reducing waste by saying no to a cup, bring your own mug or, or use a library mug, that's what they call them, or, or take a mug from coffee shop to coffee shop is really, really cool idea. I don't know where I'm going with this. Um, <laughs> what, we, what we did was we actually got a, a wonderful photograph from uh, Eugene at Aquabumps of Bondi Beach. And we worked with Binyan Studios and they helped comp up 75,000 cups, which is, you know, dumped on Bondi Beach, which is what ends up getting used in one week in Bondi. It's pretty spectacular to see, see that image um, and see how much is consumed. And again, it comes back to storytelling. It comes back to imagery or film or whatever. It's such people seem to uh, understand uh, an image better than, you know, reading it, etc. Um, so I think that a small thing about just saying, hey, you know what, I don't want a cup or I don't want a lid or I'm, I'm going to use my own cup, etc. That, that accumulatively m- plays a massive part in change. And, and I know how hard it is to, to, to change that habit. I know how hard it was for me to stop drinking alcohol, you know, 10 years ago. Um, you know, stopped and tried it and, you know, got drank more again, you know, off and on and on. But I haven't drank alcohol for 10 years, so I'm not consuming any alcohol, which is really cool. My body's better for it. The world's better, better for it uh, as, as a result. But the same thing for any form of consumption, you know, like having a coffee um, is like, it's so everything's been designed for convenience. Everything's been so easy for us up to date. And how do you think we can change those habits, Sarah, um, going forward? How do you think people could be inspired to say no? You know? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So the coffee cup's a classic example. We use, um, I think it was it's a, probably 2016, we were using 16 billion disposable coffee cups around the world. 
every year. Wow. It's just, Correct. it's ridiculous. Um, and, you know, the women um, that were doing, are doing the campaigns at Bondi, you know, it's a fantastic story because, again, it's just really simple. It's a really simple and visual way of showing the problem. And these women, they're just like the guys that started Take Three. They saw the problem, wanted to get the message out there. They felt compelled to tell a story about the problem and show it in a visual way. It's a fantastic campaign. The, the simplest thing that all of us as individuals can do to tackle a plastic crisis, step number one, give up single-use plastics, coffee cups, plastic shopping bags, plastic straws, plastic water bottles. That's the biggest thing that we can all do and inspire those around us to do it. Yes, giving up can be hard, uh, a hard yeah. thing to do, um, you know, particularly during COVID. You know, most cafes uh, won't allow you to use your keep cup at the moment. So I myself, I don't go out for coffee. I either bring a coffee from home or I go home and have my coffee. Or if, if now they allow you to <clears throat> sit down and have a coffee at the location rather than this crazy busy life of running around the streets carrying your yeah. single-use coffee cup. You know, it, it can be difficult, um, but you just have to, like, draw a line in the sand and kind of think to yourself, well, your life depends on it. And yeah. um, like yourself giving up alcohol, which is a really difficult thing to do, my... my gorgeous um daddy was an alcoholic you know it's a big brave step but what a positive one you've have now lived 10 years in a far more positive healthy happier way mm. and i think if you can manage to give up single-use plastics allow yourself a couple of you know mistakes every now and then um, but if you can draw that line in, your, in the sand and say i will stop using this now and I'm going to share that story and I'm going to feel good about it as a positive action that I can do, like you, Vince, you'll feel better for it. You know, you'll feel positive. You, mm. You'll know that you as a human being, you're doing your part about tackling the plastic pollution crisis. And then as soon as you share that story, you know, kind of like using reusable solutions is kind of a cool thing to do now. And that's the thing. Yeah. It's like the hip. You know, if you're, if you're walking around the streets of Bondi, and you're using a single-use coffee cup, like, man, people look at you and frown. It's like smoking, you know, if you walk around and there's a smoker, people yeah. frown at you. It's 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 become the uncool thing to do. Like, the cool thing to do is to have your reusable shopping bags, your reusable bottles, your reusable coffee cups. So, you know, if you're worried about image, then it's okay. It's cool and hip too to use reusable solutions. You know, that's what yeah. we're all, we're, we're all doing. We have to do it. There's no question about it. You just like no. say, I'm going to do this and you do it. And you know, we're not perfect as human beings. We're far from perfect. So be fair on yourself. Um, but not so fair on yourself that you go back to your old ways. Yeah. Oh, beautifully put. Um, speaking of bags, um, <laughs> there's a, a, a wonderful, I, I live up in Avalon and there's this wonderful thing that's going on that's called the boomerang bag, yeah. boomerang bags, which are, I don't know if it's just in Avalon, it's all over the place it now. Is. Um, but they're little, a little box outside of most stores with these beautifully made canvas bags, all different colors and materials and um, 
I've got quite a few of them now because I absolutely love them. And uh, I quite I just love the whole idea that someone has thought about. It's an incredible, generous thing too. People are making these bags, put them in a box outside a store. You walk in the store and you go, oh, damn it, I forgot my bag. There's one there. I'll use that. And um, you don't feel you don't feel bad about using it because they're so beautiful. And I just think it's just a wonderful, positive idea. We're going to try to get the lady who started that on the podcast, actually, because I think it's a really cool, uh, a cool thing, and um, obviously making, you know, a huge difference. Um, it's just a, a de- it's a design solution, right? They, they, she thought of an idea. She's got a whole bunch of people together to, in volunteering to to make these bags, and they're being used every day and they're beautiful things and it should be really celebrated. I, I just love that. So that in a way, it's like it's designing a way out of the situation uh, for a positive outcome, which is really, really cool. Yeah, no, I absolutely love boomerang bags. They're, they are all around Australia and they've been around for a while and it's that classic um, story, again, of grassroots, of somebody seeing the problem and coming up to, with a solution. And I think, and, you know, okay, that's not going to necessarily completely stop the plastic scourge that's, you know, invading our oceans, but it's playing its part. And I think that's the exciting thing, particularly for for you guys in the design sector is, you know, like you've just got this clean slate of all these, there's all of these problems and designers of the world can be so empowered, can feel so excited and so positive. Like mm. like designers see problems, they come up with solutions. Um, yeah. And you've got a whole world of problems that need solutions to design our way out of particularly the plastic problem, you know, to ensure that we aren't using virgin uh, natural resources anymore. We're, we're, we're taking too much out of the ground. We need to, uh, you know, I'm sure you've heard of the circular economy, the, yeah, you know, everything that we do, we need to have the circular economy in mind, how we can reuse things, recycle things, design things so that once they're finished this life, they can have a new life and a new life. And that's, I mean, that's such a positive, exciting thing for the design mm. world. You know, I'm trying to encourage, I've got teenage boys and I'm like, going to design, whether it's architecture or design or problem solving, engineering uh, in a sustainable way because the opportunities are limitless and it's a way that in your I think you know certainly it is for me which is the choices that I've made my we spend so much time doing our work doing our jobs and so Mm. for me what I do every day in my work has to make a contribution it's part of my core values and it has to have a purpose you know I, I cannot get to the end of my life as a 90 year old woman looking back on what I've done and not have contribution and positive purpose as like key big things up there in in shiny lights. Just, I don't have to be famous for it, but just know that I've done my bit as a human mm-hmm. being. And I think that's the exciting thing for the design world is that you all have this incredible opportunity to make a huge and significant difference to make our planet a better place to live, a safe place to live for us and all of the other species living here. And essentially, you you know, you guys are designing the future. You're designing a future for our planet ocean and for planet Earth. And that's kind of exciting. It's not ominous. It's super exciting and positive. And, you know, if I, if I could have my time again, I think I'd be a designer. <laughs> 
Well, I'll tell you what, that that is your soapbox moment, <laughs> not the one before. <laughs> that was amazing. I got goosebumps, and I'm excited that I chose this career. But I absolutely um, thank you for all the things that you said. That was so uh, motivating and, and passionate. And, you know, you're absolutely right. Design can play a massive part in this, and, and, and it does, and, and, and it should. And it's all about ideas and problem solving. And we've designers have always said that we're all about problem solving and big ideas. It's like the thing is, most of the, the problems haven't been really been problems. They've been commercial problems, mm. not problems that have how do we save the earth? How do we make things better? Yeah, um, and I'll just quickly, there's two, there's two good things there off that. Yes, designers have their purpose, and then designers need filmmakers and storytellers to get that out there. Um, yeah. But also, the other positive thing is it's happening. It's, it's not something of the future. Like we're seeing designers coming up with solutions, look at what's happening with cars becoming electric. You know, designers yeah, came up yeah. with that. Let's look what's happening with architecture around the world, urban design and planning, you know, yeah. the products that we use, so even the simplest, you know, cafe culture and all of the kind of coffee cups and takeaway and things like they're coming up with compostable solutions. You know, I can now get my sushi, if I want sushi, in a compostable cardboard container, no more plastic hideous revolting packaging so you know what we're seeing in the packaging space has been driven by designers who have a passion for taking care of the environment and that's yeah. a good thing and what's really cool is the consumer is mm. demanding that as mm. well right we've had more clients than ever knock on our door in the last year who who want to do the right thing or want to navigate this and make sure that they are making a positive contribution not just getting stuff done for uh, economical mm. benefit um, times, tides have changed, um, and, and, and this is a really, really, really cool moment in our lives. And I think it's uh, that wonderful, positive optimism. I, I, loved, I loved all the things you said today. Um, do, you th do you feel like you've designed your life? I haven't designed my life. I'm designing my life, for sure. I, you know, the key, the key things for me, um, recently, actually, I've been working... Um, trying to work out, you know, what are the core values that I want to live my life by and the things I've mentioned already in our conversation, which is making a contribution and having mm -hmm. a positive contribution on the planet and living mm -hmm. um, as a part of nature and with nature. But we live in an ever-changing world, so I think you constantly have to adjust to that. So yeah. I... I think about the way that I want to live every day. So I guess I'm designing my life every day because I'm making choices every day of how yeah. I can uh, be better and live better as an individual um, and how I can do my work better uh, and have a greater impact. So, yeah, designing my life, it's very fluid, but it's very, there's some really clear directions there, and that is sustainability positive contribution, conservation, making my life not about me. And, that, and that's not meant to sound um, egotistical. I can actually, you know, it's really quite humble. You know, I, I just want to be part of a, a, a bigger picture of people making a positive difference and, and trying to get our planet back on track to, um, to, for a sustainable future. Well, Sarah, you are making a huge difference uh, and a huge contribution, and I thank you for that. 
Uh, and thank you for inspiring me and the, and the listeners. How do people take part in or get hold of uh, Take Three? Sure. Well, thank you again so much for having me um, today. It's been great speaking with you, Vince. Um, it's really exciting for uh, Take Three to be connected to a different sector. You know, it's really important to us to be uh, connected to a as broader audience um, geographically and culturally uh, and different industries. So people can reach us, um, you know, at take3.org. Um, but we're really also, Take3 Take does a lot of work uh, in schools with education, but we've also uh, in the recent years pivoted to working a lot with business. We're really passionate about working with business on their sustainability journeys. Um, and we have lots of different um, programs and way that we connect with businesses as simple as doing um, corporate cleanups or business cleanups. We have lots of presentations both online and face-to-face -face when we get back there. Um, again, your, your relationship with Take3 can be you as an individual uh, and just connecting with us. You can join us as a volunteer. Uh, you can support us by donating to us. You can follow us on social media. We have a massive social media audience. Um, or you can connect us as a community or a business. Um, and it's really just about engaging with us in whatever capacity that you can. The key thing you can do for us is, is spread the message. Have those conversations. Uh, make changes yourself and tell people why you're doing it and, and the purpose of why you're doing it and inspire other people to do it. Then you're basically like part of the Take Three movement. You know? uh, that's, all, that's all we ask. And, and we've got a great thing coming up there, coming up for business uh, leaders, is we have our uh, inaugural global virtual CEO cleanup. For the last couple of years, we've been running um, oh, cool. CEO cleanups with business leaders who want to show um, leadership in the sustainability sector. We haven't been able to because of COVID, so we've decided to go for a virtual one, and that's um, open now at cocleanup.com. And uh, you can join us there, and there's actually a week of cleanups coming up um, in December. And again, it's all about sharing your story. So if you're a business leader, sign up. It is a fundraiser for us to deliver our education programs, but more importantly, you become part of a business community um, of business leaders showing that you've got a commitment to protecting the oceans and you share your story and there'll be a global audience all doing the same thing. Sign me up. I'm going to be signed up for that. That sounds really cool. Um, also, I want to organize uh, getting the Frost Collective team on a beach somewhere uh, and doing our thing together. That'd be so, so cool. So, uh, hey, Sarah, look, thank you so much for today. It's been really, really inspiring catching up with you. All the best. Thank you, Vince, and thanks, Frost, and I look forward to hearing how you, how you how the blue screening goes. Sweet. Thank you, Sarah. Take Thank care. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening in to today's episode of Design Your Life, Tied for Change, with the inspiring storyteller, Sarah Beard. Tune into the next episode where I'll be catching up with a brilliant filmmaker and unfortunately not related, Spencer Frost. Thanks for listening to this episode of Design Your Life. If you'd like to find out more about how you can design your life, head to the website at designyourlife.com.au. If you found this episode inspiring, please don't forget to review and subscribe. If you have any ideas or like to get in touch, we would love to hear from you. Send us an email at hello at frostcollective.com.au.